size, our skills, our gifts, our personalities. The one who fearfully and wonderfully makes us. Lord, we praise you, for there are none like you. And your name under heaven is the only name under which we, we may be saved. Lord God, we thank you that at the fall you did not run away. We thank you at the, 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 the little falls that we make on a daily basis that you do not run away. But that you are the good shepherd who came to seek and to save the lost and to redeem a people for himself that you would set your forever love upon. Lord, we thank you and praise you, for there is none like you. Father, as we continue to come now in your word, we pray that you would transform us by the power of the gospel. We pray, Lord God, that you would free us, that you would enable us, Lord, to live the life you've called us to, that... God, we know some of us, we struggle with these concepts of grace. We struggle with these concepts of forgiveness. Even though we want it, we struggle because it's so foreign to what we knew, maybe to what we grew up in. And Lord, I pray that you would even there renew our minds and change our hearts, that we would experience the extravagant love, mercy, and grace that you came to give, and that we would be so transformed by your spirit that we would be enabled to give it to others. We ask all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I love this text in Isaiah 40. We're going to be in it for two weeks, uh, the next two weeks, as we kind of look at this. Isaiah writing hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is a really exciting book. It's a book that critical scholars really struggle with because Isaiah so clearly predicts events that are going to happen several hundred years uh, after he is around ministering. He, he's around and he's ministering before the time of the, well, the rise of the Assyrian Empire, and he perfectly predicts the rise of the Babylonian Empire. And so if you don't believe in the supernatural, you kind of struggle with Isaiah because he he gets the future so right. Um, and so we're excited to spend two weeks, well, two weeks in Isaiah 40, then few, few, three sermons outside of Isaiah 40, but in the book. Let's look at this text this morning. See that God promises comfort to his people living in exile. He will come. His promise is true. Fear not, he says. He is the king, the generous benefactor, the good shepherd. He will comfort his people. It's the message of Isaiah 40. God promises to comfort his people in exile. I think a lot, for a lot of us, Christmas is a time where we long for home. And for some of us, that, that longing, right, it's expressed in decoration. We have a house, right? You may live in a house, but it's around the time of Christmas where you say, I want my house to be a home. I want it to have that warm, comforting feeling that we would feel settled, secure, a place where we'd kind of feel just drawn in. And so, you know, it's really important that we have the smell of the pine tree, the gentle lights hanging, the, the beautiful runner going across your dining room table, the, the newest Yankee Candle Company, you know, 
bling spread throughout the home. They never thought it would be called bling. You want to create that, and you want to transform your, your house into a place that, again, people just want to lay back and settle and enjoy hours of good conversation. Christmas is that time when we have that longing for home, a time where we'd experience community, rest, and peace. For some of us, that means traveling to the same place you've gone year after year after year. You go to the same home. You have the same meal, probably with the same people. You know what the order of the day is going to look like. And, and so you, you have that longing for a home, that sense of place. And all of this is why for some of us, the Christmas season is a time of great sorrow. Because we, don't, we, have, not, we have this longing in our hearts for home that has never been satisfied. That longing for tradition and for place that we've never had the blessing of having. The brokenness of the world has denied it to us. Broken relationships, broken families, broken providence. So we think. Yet still we can't escape that yearning. We can't escape it. One of the most powerful images in technology, I'm sure you've seen it, it's a beautiful picture that technology gives us, is when we've seen over the last number of years, the image in the Christmas season of soldiers halfway around the world, faithfully serving their country. But what are they still doing? They're happy to be serving their country, but they're longing for home. They're longing for home. Christmas is a time when we long for home. Because no matter how much we may want to, we are unable to escape the truths of the gospel. And the gospel tells us that there's this feeling of longing that we all have. So you may remember, for those of us I'm dating myself, when MTV first came out, there was actually some news on MTV. Go back, it was amazing. And um, I can remember Tabitha Soren, one of the MTV reporters in the late 90s. And she said, quote, no matter how secular our culture becomes, it will remain drenched in the Bible. Since we will be haunted by the Bible, even if we don't know it, doesn't it make sense that we read it? We put up signs in Christmas, right? Signs that say joy and peace and hope. We, we hang banners because no matter who we are or what we believe, we long for that. We, and so you can go into world market and spend a fortune on, on all these decorations because they express something we are longing for. And the Christmas season is when we, we take that longing and we put it on our walls and we put it on our statuses and we put it on our shirts. And we say, I am longing for something that, I, I, that I, maybe I don't have or I have, but I want more of. Longing. For, for this expression of what I think home is supposed to be. Peace, joy, hope. Isaiah chapter 40, God is promising to comfort his people. They are hurt. They are confused. They are broken. 
because they are no longer home. They are no longer home. Uh, In Isaiah 39, the prophet Isaiah promises Hezekiah that a day is coming when the nation of Israel will be invaded by a foreign country and taken into exile. Isaiah 39 ends with this theme of judgment. You will be judged. You will be judged. You'll be punished. Isaiah is looking to the future in this day when God is going to judge them for their sins and remove them from the place that he gave them. Isaiah 39 ends with God saying, a day is coming when you will lose your home. You will be taken away. Isaiah 39, 6. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. It's a powerful statement. Nothing's going to be left. Isaiah 39 ends with this judgment. They are going to lose their home. And, And again, not because of bad luck. Not because karma has swung back around. Not because they are the weaker nation. No. The people of Israel will lose their home because ultimately they have broken the covenant. They have sinned against a holy and righteous God who is going to judge them for their sin. And he's going to take them away. You know, oftentimes we want to believe that we can sin and get away with it. For some of us, we might admit that it's kind of a game. Let me sin and see how long I can get away with it. Let me see how long I can keep a step and a half ahead of judgment. And that that becomes something of an underlying excitement over our sin. Isaiah 39 reminds us that ultimately God's judgment will always come. It may be delayed as we understand it, but it is just and it is sure. And so it's amazing when you think about it. Isaiah 39 looks forward to this promised judgment, this moment of exile from home. And then you get one chapter next, and he is promising comfort to people that haven't even been born yet. Comfort to the people that are going to be experiencing that loss and brokenness. The Bible is an amazing book. Full of this. Quote, Isaiah sees a day when God's servant will be crushed to the ground under the burden of their sins. They will feel sure that all is lost and that the promises have been nullified by their rebellion. But the message to be proclaimed is that this is not so. This is not so. God speaking through Isaiah knows that when the exile has happened, when long into the future the people of Israel are there, think, wondering if all is lost, they're going to be there wishing they could get back to the promised land, but assuming that their dream of home is now nothing but shifting shadow, eluding them at every turn. 
They're going to be in that place where they are convinced that they have sinned so bad, there is no hope left for them. They have sinned so bad that there can never be any redemption. They've sinned so bad that they can never come home. He knows that's what they're going to think. We lost it forever. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that you have sinned so bad that God either couldn't or wouldn't do anything to change you or change your situation? Have you ever felt like I I had this chance and I blew it? And now there's no hope for me. There may be hope for you, but there's no hope for me. Feel that way? You get the sense that that is how God, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Isaiah, is concerned the Israelites in exile are going to feel. And he wants, he doesn't want that to happen. Right after promising judgment, he promises comfort to those who are far from home. Ever since the fall, we are all looking to get home, to go home. Every one of us has this longing for home. Maybe it's a home that we experienced and lost. Maybe it's a home we've never had, but we've wished for. And why? Why do we long for home? Because somewhere, somehow, I think in a way that we can't even quantify or qualify, We're all longing for Eden. We're all missing life in Eden. Those long time ago, we all miss it. Somehow we, our souls, you might say, remember that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. That there was a time when we were home, when we had peace with each other, peace with God's creation, peace with God himself. Isn't that what we want at Christmas? peace. It's like part of us knows that the absence of peace in this world that defines every one of our experience to a varying degree is not the way it was meant to be. And so we long, we long for what we once had. The feelings of restlessness we experience, the longing reminds us that we are all exiles longing to be home. And in the middle of that fear that our sin has forever shipwrecked us, God steps in. Just like he stepped into the nation of Israel. And what does he say? Does he say, I told you so? Does he say, I just gave you what you deserve? Does he say, you should have known better? What does he say? Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Despite everything that they have done, despite all the ways that they have failed, all of the ways they have messed up, what does he call them there? He says, you are my people. The most staggering Two words, even even in the whole text. Everything that's happened, he still says, my people. He still wants them. He still loves them. They may have walked away from him, but he has not abandoned them forever. 
This passage is littered with the extravagant love of a gracious God. He will comfort his people. What? Speak tenderly to them. You know, the Hebrew language there is the language of a lover whispering sweet, tender words of comfort and affection in the hope of a response. Speak tenderly to her. Against all hope, God in Isaiah 40 is coming to woo his people back to him and comfort them with his love. It's the heart of a God who himself, you might say, was born in exile when he became incarnate. That he might pursue us and bring us home. Look what he tells them. Look at the picture of grace he gives. Cry to her that her warfare has ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. The time of suffering for sin is over. That's what he's looking forward to. It's going to be a time when the suffering for sin is over. Um, I think the NIV translates warfare hardship. Saying there's going to be the time when the warfare or the hardship is over. It's done. Your iniquity has been pardoned. It's a great one to underline. Pardoned. They have been, you know, you know what it means to be pardoned, right? You are released from the penalty of your offense. You are released. Not you worked off the debt. You have been released. You could spend 10,000 lifetimes trying to earn a pardon, trying to rectify the damage that they had done. But here God just, he forgives them. He erases the penalty. And he's got an idiom here that was used in the ancient Near East. It talks about you paid double. So say you went in the ancient Near East, you went to a cobbler. You went to get a pair of shoes. And the cobbler made you a pair of shoes. And say he was going to charge you 100 bucks for your shoes, right? He might go and he might then take the bill and he'd probably take a nail and he'd hammer in on your front door, shoes, $100. At whatever point you paid that bill, he would come forward to that single sheet of paper or, you know, hanging on your door, um, and he would fold it in half. So, and, and when it was folded over in half, it would be the debt is paid. It has been satisfied. And so you'd have this, like, doubling, this doubled piece of paper signifying your debt is paid. You are free. People of Israel have had their sin pardon for God himself has paid the debt. Jesus Christ has paid exactly what was required. That's what the doubling over signified. Exactly what was owed has been paid. They are even. That's what Jesus Christ has done. These people have sinned and God has offered them extravagant grace. They've been pardoned. You see the wonder of the gospel in this text? Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the promise of grace and comfort coming to a people living in exile, longing for home, longing to be in the presence of God once more. Do you believe it? Are you following him home? If you're not a Christian, today could be the day. Because there's no better offer of grace in this world. Comfort at the hands of the one you have sinned against. Payment for every sin you have ever committed. Paid for by the hand of God himself. Who gave his one and only son to die in our place for our sins. So that God's justice and God's love could both be satisfied at once. Are you ready to come home? We are born into this world where from the moment we are conscious, we feel the weight of being in exile. But God is merciful and gracious and wants to bring us home. Are you ready to confess that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and cry out to him, even as Isaiah cries out, Lord, I want your comfort. I want that pardon. I want that healing. Pay my debt. Pay my debt. Save me. That would make today a great day, and I would love to pray with you after the service. The message of Isaiah 40 is that the people's only hope is in the grace of God. They are living in exile under a superpower. The only way they're ever going to get home is if this gracious God forgives them and brings them home. It's our only, it's, it was their only hope, and it's our only hope as well. Because I think even as Christians, we need to fight to believe in this incredible grace just as much as anyone else. Because the grace that we see in Isaiah 40 and Psalm 103 calls us to something far better than we naturally live in and far more expansive than we naturally give. Let me tease that out quickly. God's comfort comes to a people, God's comfort to a people living in exile is far better than what we naturally live in. Think about it. How many of you, you've repented? You've believed? Maybe it was when you were six, maybe it was when you were 60, you prayed with someone else, you said, I believe, you were saved. You were baptized, perhaps. But to this day, you struggle under this weight that you need to be now perfect. That God extended you grace, and now he's looking for some spiritual performance. That you need to kind of have it all together, or he's going to get mad at you and feel like he wasted his grace on you. You know, we walk around, we fall into the subtle trap of thinking that grace only comes once. Or that it can be exhausted how many of us are plagued with anxiety over whether or not we have done enough? Think about it. It's like Christmas. We're, we're, hey, it's Advent, right? You're thinking Christmas. How many of you? If you've ever hosted, I almost, I almost guarantee you've done this. The holiday's coming around. The company's coming. It's, you know, within that, like, hour window left, you are freaking out. 
running around your house. Is the toilet still clean? Because it was clean an hour ago, but I got three kids. Is the toilet clean? Did, are the socks picked up? Did I get all the dusting? Did, does this, you know, the, the stew look like it's going to be okay? Is the roast going to be overcooked? Are, are, are the table set? You're running around with anxiety. Did I do enough? Is it perfect enough? Did I make it okay? Or is something going to fall apart and mess up the day? How many of us, that's exactly what we do before the Lord? We've been given this great gift. People, we're home, and yet we're running around anxious. Did we miss something? Is there a sin we forgot to confess? Could we have done better? Could we have made it more perfect? We sing over his grace, and we're up at night petrified because we have failed to give him our best. And what do the scriptures tell us, weary, beleaguered Christians who need to believe grace more every day? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. The company leaves the house, and you think, you think they'll ever come back after what just happened? Was my meal good enough? Was the house clean enough? Was the conversation okay enough? It's not how, how God treats us. We live in a world that repays often repays us, sometimes rather harshly. But God does not repay us according to our iniquities. Embrace the Christian, embrace the freedom of grace. God did not give you what you deserved when he saved you. And he is not giving you what you deserve now. He didn't give you the grace of inviting you into his home so that you could walk around on pins and needles every day. It's not the grace he gave you. He gave you the grace of inviting you into his home and the peace of being able to fall asleep on a leather sofa next to a warm fire, knowing that you've been accepted, pardoned, cleansed, set free. You received grace. Rest in it and stop worrying and about if, whether or not you're living well enough to repay him for what he has done. We need this grace that God is comforting his people with. God's comfort to a people living in the exile is far better than we naturally give to each other. This is another way where I think all of us, we need to grow. Think about it. Would you say, I find it easy to give other people the same grace and forgiveness God has given me? Is that easy or is that hard? Are you aware where you're at on that scale? Do we give the grace and forgiveness of the world or do we give the grace and forgiveness of Christ? Think about it. Have you ever had someone forgive you? Say, I forgive you. I forgive you. And then they launched into how bad you are and all the wrong you've done. I remember this quite acutely. This was my picture of forgiveness as a teenager. Because I can remember many times when I would go, um, and, and I, I can think of a few times when I really actually was repentant, believe it or not, even as an unbelieving 15-year-old. And I can remember crying to my mother and apologizing and asking her to forgive me. And I can remember saying, Christopher, I forgive you. And then the monologue began. 
about how the wrong I had done, how hurtful it was, how wrong it was, how I should have known better. And I sat there for 20 minutes thinking, I was just crying and asked you to forgive me. What happened? And I can remember how often my, my concept as a young man of forgiveness was modeled when I saw three months later. And I still remember when you did this. And six months later, and I haven't forgotten when you did that. And years later, and I, do you remember? And I remember this being a confused young man thinking, but I really did ask for forgiveness. And you gave it to me. So what's the problem now? Either you lied and never gave me forgiveness. Or forgiveness is meaningless. What is it? 17-year-old unbeliever, my concept of forgiveness was totally ruined until I met Jesus, who gives us a far richer, better forgiveness. It's not, that's not the forgiveness God gives us. Think about it. Um, what does he promise his people? I will pardon your iniquity. I will pardon it. Pardon is a beautiful word. Why? Because when you're pardoned, he never throws your sin in your face again. When you're pardoned, you never get punished again. It's not like, well, I got pardoned, but who knows what next week is going to bring. No, when you get pardoned for a specific crime, you're free. And that's the grace Jesus gives us. He removed your sins. Far, it's far from you. What does it say? As far as the east is from the west. They don't touch there's no longer anything to pardon you for. You can lay your head down night, at night experiencing the peace of home. And you can wake up because you know that your sins have been taken away. What does God say? He says, I remember them no more. They're not even on his mind. That is the forgiveness God offers us in Christ. When you walk in life and you start to shudder because you hear that eternal voice bringing your sin up to you again. If you are in Christ, I want you to recognize that is not the voice of God. That is the voice of the devil. He is the one who likes to flash our sin in our face again and again long after we have repented. He's the one, not living God. And as we speak to one another in the body of Christ, we have this incredible opportunity to reflect to each other the extravagant grace of God made possible in the gospel and give one another a true vision and an experience of what forgiveness and grace is. It's beautiful to reflect the gospel to one another. Practically speaking... Short of situations where you are in danger, I mean physical danger, there are, there are real situations where you can forgive someone, but you kind of do need to keep half an eye on them because you're in physical danger. Short of those situations, when we really do forgive someone, that means a monologue doesn't come after it because we've let go if we are mirroring forth the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. And if we are unable to do that, because we're still so worked up at the injury or the perceived injury, the best thing we can say is, I can't forgive you right now, but I want to get there. 
And I'm going to pray that God would help me get there. Sometimes I think in the church we have this need to tell someone we forgive them. And then we don't live out that forgiveness because we really weren't ready to forgive them. And so the best thing we can say is, I want to get there, but I'm not there yet. Jesus and I have to do some work together. Or here's, here's why. Have the conversation. Don't just give it, but not give it. So for some of us, it's a struggle. We're not ready. For others of us, it's because we don't really understand what forgiveness and grace looks like. And we need to just spend more time drinking from this well. These are shocking verses. And think about it again. They haven't even been sent into exile yet. And God is already forecasting comfort, comfort. The people who are going to be sent into exile haven't been born yet in Isaiah 40. And yet God is supernaturally working and saying, this is the grace I'm going to give that generation, even though they haven't been born. This is an amazing God. Amazing. And it's such a beautiful reflection of the gospel when we can give or receive the abundant grace that he gives us. So now I'm on my second point, and I'm thinking in the moment that, you know, Chad Werman has been very perceptive. And Chad has noticed that my first point is always my longest point. And then there's always this, there's this perceived rush to finish. So we're going we're gonna to press. Press for the sake of Chad and everyone else. Uh, God promises to comfort his people in exile. He will come. His promise is true. Fear not. God is promising to comfort this people, but as they stand there in exile, weighed down by discouragement, they're going to need some, to exercise some faith to believe. I mean, think about it. God is promising comfort, right? He's prom- Comfort, comfort my people. How many of us have had someone make us a promise that they never delivered on? They promised they would do something, but maybe they were then incapable of fulfilling that promise. We've done that, right? You promise someone something, you really do mean well, but then circumstances change and you can't deliver. I can remember getting, having someone promise me a job and my wife and I moved a thousand miles to get this job. And then I got there and got told, well, I'm sorry, I can't do that now. That happens to us in life, right? Sometimes promises are unfulfilled and unmet. And so God makes a promise, and then he wants to call us to see him for who he is, that we would have faith that he would fulfill that promise. He does not make a promise the way the world makes promises. I love this beautiful image, right? The mountains being laid low, the valleys being lifted up. You know, Christmas is a time when we receive guests and we try to roll out the red carpet. As Tim would say, practice hospitality. Make them feel comfortable. Here you see creation itself rolling out the red carpet for the Lord. The creation itself moving to pave the way for God to come and rescue his people from exile. He will come and his promise is sure. He does not make a promise the way the world makes promises. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Unless you spend a fortune on watering your lawn, like my neighbors do, you know that spring, it starts out looking really good. But eventually, it's going to change. 
It's going to get brown. It's, some of it is going to wither, if it's a, particularly if it's a bad August. We, we think of grass and we think of the transient, changing nature. And so God's just trying to remind us that, hey, that's not who I am. Grass may fade, but I will not. My promise will not. He gives us this contrast. God's promises don't fade the way our actions and promises do. Nothing is going to get in the way of him fulfilling his promise. The Babylonians aren't going to get in the way of God rescuing his people from exile. The Israelites, God's people, are not getting in the way of him rescuing them from exile. Nothing on heaven and earth is going to stop God from fulfilling the promise he makes. Numbers 23. God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? This is where we need to exercise, some of us need to exercise faith. The fulfillment of God's promises may feel like a long time in coming. In fact, for the exiles it would be. For the people longing for the Messiah, it would be a long time coming. And this is why I think we are, we have so much against us in this generation. Because we are the generation of instant gratification. I mean, how many of you, you know, we can't sit still for five minutes anymore and just wait. We've got to pull out our phone. Even those of us who didn't have a smartphone at one point, now it's like, oh, if I'm waiting in the doctor's office, I can't just sit still. I need to do something while I wait to do something. We have so much against us. Because God's promises sometimes are very slow in coming from our perspective. But that, makes, that does not make them any less sure and constant. He, he will be and always is faithful. And again, look at how he calls them to exercise faith. I love this verse. This is a challenging verse. Go up onto a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. He's calling us to exercise some assurance, the kind of assurance where we shout from the rooftops. This is who he is. This is what he's going to do. I believe. It's kind of assurance he wants us to enter into. It's the opportunity every one of us has when we share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone else. We are shouting forth this assurance. God loves you enough that he has provided the way to bring you home. He saved me. I know he can save you. It's a joy. He's the king, the generous benefactor, the good shepherd. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You know, some of us, I think we struggle with this fall rid of that image and the surest solution to getting rid of that image is meditating again and again on God's revelation of himself. You've got to replace the who he is with who you think he is. And I love this text. I mean, I mean, three things. I mean, this is worth meditating on this afternoon over lunch. We see God as a king, a generous benefactor, and a good shepherd. 
God is the coming king. He is greater than our sin. He's stronger than our enemy. He's able to rescue us and redeem us and give us, give us what our hearts and souls yearn for. He's mighty. Mighty enough to be born in a manger, live the perfect life that we cannot live, and die the death that we deserve to die. He's a great king, and he has no equals. But he's also a generous benefactor. He's a giver of good gifts. He's the God who likes, is, is in the habit of restoring the years that the locusts have eaten. He's in the habit of blessing his children with, with spiritual gifts for the advancement of his kingdom. He is the one who wants to bless us as we experience this yearning for home, for peace and joy and rest. He's the God who wants to give it to us. The God who gives us grace instead of judgment, forgiveness instead of punishment. The God who speaks to us words of blessing rather than words of what we could have done better. He's the good shepherd. The one who lifts up the weak and weary and overwhelmed and carries us through life until he carries us home. Carrying us. I mean, don't you love that image there? He will gather the lambs in his arms and will carry them in his bosom. God is saying that to you. I want to lift you up and carry you so that you're so close to my chest, you feel my heart and you know my love. I haven't met a person yet in life who said, I never desire comfort. Everyone is yearning. We're yearning to be comforted. And in Advent, we celebrate that our King came, that we might have it. Let's pray. Living, loving Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a gracious God. And that you do not repay us according to what our sins deserve but instead you shower us with love and mercy and grace. God, continue to transform us that we might believe, that we might rejoice and embrace and accept your comfort. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.